So here's what happened as a proud member of the Babuido podcast community. Hey, y'all, we are back after a brief break, and it is me, Nisha, joined by my lovely co-host, as always. Carolyn, hey. Hey, hey, girl, hey. We are back. You know, people been busy. I mean, Carolyn was off covering South by Southwest in all the things with that came out of that from the screenings. Um, I have been buried in midterms. <laughs> so, you know, in writing things. Um, but we're going to use this time to get y'all caught up to speed on what we've been writing, not writing, Jesus, no, I don't need to know what I've been writing, what we have been reading and watching in the month of March, and I guess a little bleed over into April since this episode will be coming out in April, but yeah, so let's get dope, diving right back into it. Yes, yeah, so for our March episode, we're going to start off with books, so we're going to start off with Amisha telling us what books are manga, as you know. She's been reading, and then I'll go into the books that I've kind of started around. Yeah, I'll explain. And then we'll do TV shows and films. So, Nisha, you go first. Yes. Um, and yeah, kind of sort of red also goes for mine, too. Uh, but yeah, I am very excited to talk about the books that I have. So what I have here, and I'm showing Carolyn because y'all can't see this, but, you know, give y'all a little background. If you've ever heard of a little film called The Castle of Cagliostro, its other title, its full title is actually Lupin the Third in the Castle of Cagliostro that was directed by the amazing Hayao Miyazaki. Um, it's one of the films that people like kind of don't include in the Studio Ghibli sphere universe because it technically wasn't put out by Studio Ghibli. Like it's confusing, but like when you see Studio Ghibli, it's not always, people don't always know that Lupin the Third was in, is in that sphere of like in that space of things that came from Hayao Miyazaki at that time. So yes, and Hayao Miyazaki also was a director on the first season of Lupin the Third. So he has about 12 episodes where he was the head director on. So that was just to give you all some feed, some background information because I have in my hand for my trip in Seattle where I went to this awesome bookstore my, that my friends took me to um, called Kino Kunya is the screenplay where you have the screenplay and the basically shot for shot, um, I'm not, what did we, we just called it, what was it called? Isn't it Storyboard, the storyboard. So it's the screenplay and the storyboard in this book. And it's a nice, hefty book. And it's just like, I was, I was showing Carolyn, like clearly both of these things are printed in Japanese. It is actually like, the thing I love about the screenplay and the storyboard is that it's handwritten. So like, these are like actual notes that someone hand wrote. So these aren't typed out, but it's just, it's beautiful to look at. And even though I can't read it, maybe one day I'll learn Japanese again. I can read somebody's handwriting just so I can enjoy it more. But I've seen this movie so many times that I know the lines and I know what's happening in each frame. And then the other one, again, this is printed in Japanese, but it's Lupin the Third in the Castle of Cagliostro. And basically what they did is they took the movie and they made it into like this little manga book and it's just so cute and like the thing that makes me so excited about both of these one because it's Lupin two because it's Hayao Miyazaki but y'all don't understand how rare these finds are because when you go to bookstore like I went to this bookstore and I found these were the only two the only copies of each of these books 
I have tried to find these online without them coming from a seller, like coming from an actual bookstore for years. The only way that you could actually get these is if somebody sold them to you, like another seller on Amazon or eBay, or if you happen to go to a bookstore and they had these in stocks. So these are just like very rare to find. They're not super expensive. I mean, I spent $50 on the big one. So I will say that is expensive for a book, but it's, it. it's worth it. And then the other one, we spend how much more, how, how much money on textbooks, like for, right. for, for like a semester? You exactly. Cause how I've spent $300 on one book in the program that came with it. So this was justified. And then the other one is $26.99. And again, I'm not saying this to be like thrown in y'all faces, but like, I don't know how easy it would be for y'all to find them. Cause I'm just telling you, anybody you gonna find it from, it might be hard to find it from the original publisher. I don't think they even like sell them anymore. It's probably gonna be found either on eBay, Amazon, if you're lucky, and maybe some bookstores that still like have access to who's ever, if they're still in print. Because from what I've seen, I have never been able to find where to buy them unless it was from another seller. Did you ask the bookstore how they got their copies? I did. And she said like, oh, we've had these for a long time. Like she just told me like, I don't know how, like I'm assuming they came from where like all the other ones that came from like the same publisher. But I'm like, it's confusing because like the Studio Ghibli ones came from Biz Media. Like the Studio Ghibli, like um, there was there's a whole, there was a whole section, actually two big sections of Studio Ghibli, and then there was a Miyazaki section where you know you had his biography. Actually, there was two, and then autobiography. Um, you had the art books, which I also collect, um, that were there. And I'm just like, well, those say Biz Media. The autobiographies, they're not the same publisher as this one. I can't read the publisher's name on this. Maybe one, I might just like search for it and see if I can find it. And then if I can see where y'all are able to buy them, I will be happy to share them for anyone who's interested. Um, but yeah, they just said that they had had these copies for a long time. So I don't know. Well, you did. You, you found them when you were supposed to find them. Yeah, God, God knew. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love them. And like, if you've ever seen the Castle of Cagliostro movie, it's a beautiful movie. And in my opinion, I have told people this before, it is what helped develop Lupin the Third's character drastically for, and I hate to say it this way, but like for a wider audience to appreciate him. And I'm not saying that in a dig to the character, but like the original Lupin the Third series Lupin is a womanizer. He's a cheat. He's like, but at the same time, like he's, he's supposed to be that way. He's a, he's a scoundrel. But what Hayao, what Hayao Miyazaki was able to do with Lupin the third was he made the, him like this chaotic neutral hero in a sense where he so does did what, what, um, oh my gosh, why am I drawing a blank? The character that John Cho recently played in the Netflix show. Oh, Cowboy Bebop? Yes. Cowboy Bebop. So he's kind of yes. like um, Spike. Well, so Spike is inspired by Lupin also. There have been oh, other right. characters, like Lupin's character archetype. He's like, I don't want to say devil may care, um, vagabond, but I think like, you know, that character type kind of gets influenced in like Lupin, where Lupin does, he does not see himself as a hero, but he does end up doing heroic things to help others but he's a thief. So right. he, he exists in this world of crime, but 
he's not the one that is like doing when like there's a villain in the story that he has to beat he ends up coming head to head with a villain and then he like he ends up helping he has he has some kind of a moral code um but it's like unique because you know like most people think well he's a thief and he's a womanizer I think Ayo Miyazaki made Lupin the third more romantic romantic in the sense of like adventure grandeur um there's more to the character than just being you know a thief and like what does that mean for him because it's like he has money what's the point of being a thief and like you know I'm gonna stop because we can do a whole we already talked about it like we might just have to do a whole episode where it's like a Hayao Miyazaki episode it may be a monkey punch episode um because I could talk about Lupin the Third all day but yes those are my books and for me the books that I kind of sort of read um is so as you guys know we've done episodes before where we where we've discussed nubia and the amazon so that's the new dc storyline created by um stephanie williams and vita ayala so it's a six it's a six volume episode series and we and we've covered volumes one and two before and we've also spoken to stephanie as well as um, her co-writer vita before in 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 episodes and interviews for the podcast and the, the series wrapped up in March I can't remember the exact date I think it was around March 12 or 16 somewhere around there and I I wanted to get the remaining um, volumes in print because these they're so beautiful like the artwork is stunning I love the covers I think my favorite cover out of all of them is probably um volume three the art like she's look at the look at her she's gorgeous like they're gorgeous because it's um because it's nubia and mm-hmm. it's medusa right and like i would i'm planning to like do something with these like to frame them or something and i wanted to read them i only got them like this week because i had to wait for them to be in stock and you know pandemic i was sick i wasn't able to get them earlier and i wasn't even able to get volume six because volume six was like completely sold out so i still have to eventually go back and get volume six in print and I can't read it on my phone or digitally because as I've been having, as you know, I've mentioned before, I have multiple sclerosis. And part of that is I have cognitive impairment. So for the majority of the year so far, so from beginning to January up until now, I've had like this really intense cognitive fog episode, which means it has been very difficult to literally read. Looking on my phone, that even using my phone, just like using Twitter and Instagram as a challenge on my phone. So reading is literally a physical um was literally almost physically impossible and writing doing reviews and stuff was so difficult so I wasn't able to read and then I got other books I got volume six of the dark blood series so I'm going to do another in another episode I'm going to finish I'm going to finish discussing the whole series because again I was only able to get one copy I have to go back and get the other copies um but another book I also picked up so I had a book haul that, like Nisha Nisha went to Seattle and had a whole book haul I had a book haul this week mm-hmm. in uh, Toronto uh, oh, so I should mention the the book, the comic book store, you know, support your local comic book store. So this comic book store that I got the newbie and the Amazon and the dark blood prints from is the beguiling. So that's in the comic book store. It's called the beguiling arts um, store. It's in Toronto, close to Spadina and college. And then another book that I picked up from Indigo is Pachinko. So I haven't started reading this book yet. Again, it's been nearly impossible, but I do want to kind of like mention it because I reviewed the show, which is showing on Apple TV. And I love the, the show. It's, the storytelling is so dense. And 
the the writer, the creator, the show creator, Sue Hugh, she did, I think she did a fantastic job adapting this book into screen because this book, when I say dense, I'm not even joking. This book written by Minjini um, is 527 pages. Like, you know, with some books you like, at the end of the story, you have like um, additional stuff at the end of like the whole book isn't necessarily the story. This book, yeah. almost the entire book is the story. Okay. That's how dense it is. So looking at it, I think the story goes right up until 400 page, 484. But, but after that, she has like, you know, the notes from the author, but there's actually a reading guy <laughs> at the back of the book because Pachinko is about the experiences. It's a family epic. It's a family saga about this family who was created, um, but whose major, whose matriarch Sanja, played by Yoon Jung in the um, screen adaptation, mm -hmm. she was she became she was married to this young minister, and she and her husband immigrated to Japan. And he's a, he was from Japan, but he is what you would call. Um, Zainichi Korean. So that Zainichi Korean in, ja in Japan is an ethnic Korean. So what happened is like before the world, um, Second World War, Koreans had immigrated to Japan. But there is a period from 1910 to 1945 where South Korea as a whole, so this is before they became North and South. So Korea as a whole was occupied by the Japanese empire. And they were subjugated. They were like um, so many of so many things about their culture was was made illegal. Like their language was criminalized. Like speaking Korean was illegal. People would be arrested for speaking Korean. Women were persecuted and and told they couldn't wear the traditional hanbok. And um, so they were had they had to wear like Western clothing, you know. And only people of the lower classes wore like traditional clothing. And um, and like singing Korean songs was criminalized and they were persecuted for that. They couldn't even eat their own rice. So rice that was grown in um, South Korea was illegal for Koreans to eat. The Japanese could eat, eat it because they, they grew it and they took it from them and exported it, right? Because it was good quality. But then Korean people were, could not eat their own rice. They, had to, they were only able, able to eat like specific grains. And, and like stuff that wasn't of good quality. Their food was taxed, like fishing and like agriculture was like heavily taxed and so on. And it was just like overall terrible experiences. And then they had their um, democratization movement after 1945 when Japan, because at the end of the Second World War, Japan like technically lost their, um, their part within the Second World War. Cause you know what, like, you know, the US and their involvement with that. Cause they were also working with the Russians and it's this whole thing, it's very deep, but they left in 1945. And the story is about just before that happened, say so around 1935, Sunja, she moved to Japan with her new husband, Isak. He's so cute. I love the character in the films. So I can't wait to read about the character in the book. And um, and so they became Zainichi Korean. And like throughout that, her, it's about her, her, her husband, her children, her grandchildren, um, mainly about her grandson, Solomon. And about this journey that they go on, and it talks about cultural um, assimilation and integration, and what it means to be an immigrant in a country and people who look like you. Because you know they're Asian. You know you can't look at a Korean and you can't look at a Japanese person and say, look at them and say, you're Japanese, you're Korean. You, they're ethnically the same race. They're they're right. Asian. 
Mm-hmm. But so he talks about being like how you're still considered an outcast in a country of people who look like you simply because of where you came from. Which, right? I think that's um I think that's just very fascinating to capture that in a story because I feel like, you know, with us being black, we know that feeling in the sense where it's like, you know, we America, for example, and Canada too, because like just because like two people like me and you, somebody can look at me and you like, oh, you're African American, Carolyn. Like, no. And I'd be like, no, I'm Bajan, born and bred, and I'm Canadian by citizenship. Right, of course. But like if if we went somewhere and someone just like said that to both of us, I'm like, oh, Lanisha, then that means you're Bajan. I'm like, nope, not. It's I like, identify as Black American. Exactly, know. right? Oh, and, and and the show goes into that because, and the book, and, and the story goes into that, I think, really well, because it talks about um, st- stigmatization and marginalization of immigrants. So while the story is very much about Koreans and their experiences in Japan and how Zainichi Koreans were treated and are still treated because there are many of them, there's like, I think the huge, the largest population of Koreans outside of Korea exists within Japan. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, there's this huge amount of people and many of them are still looked down upon in um, Japanese society. And many of them are. And it talks about and even though the, the, the story ends in 1989, I believe, I, as I said, when, when I read the book, I'll know because the story does like some specific events and um, timelines are taken out of the show. And I think that's because they're hoping if they get a second season, the stuff that isn't in season one will be in season two, which makes sense to me. I understand that. But it talks about just like wanting a sense of belonging, like knowing who you, like knowing who you are as a person and knowing who you are um, with your heritage and as a, as a, you know, like you, I'm like, I know who I am as Carolyn, but then I also want to, I also, you want to know who you are as Carolyn the Barbadian. Mm-hmm. You know, and it talks about this is that you're talking about these characters. So Solomon knows who he is, but it's like, do does Solomon know who he is as a Korean Japanese person? And as a Korean Japanese person who was who went to spend a predominant amount of time of his life in America because he went to America and he was an immigrant. He went to school in America. So it talks also about those dynamics of like being an immigrant in Japan and then also being an immigrant in America and how that differs. Because you know, in America, like there'll be more like the anti-Asian racism and you know and it talks about like the differences and how women are treated and men are treated like immigration being an immigrant is very different from men and women because women they still have to face sexism and misogyny in patriarchal societies men don't have to face out men are more likely concerned about you know earning money and being successful and coming to the top of the ladder and social status and all that but women are like we got to fight you we also got to fight as women we also got to fight as being recognized as human beings you know we also got to fight in societies that subjugate women and you know and it talks about like in my review I said the, uh, the show very much is like the more the world changes the more it stays the same no matter mm-hmm. how much the world has progressed we still have racism we still have sexism we still have xenophobia we still have xenophobia you know we still have misogyny we still have you know we still have all of these things and it's like the world has not changed very much and like while the show as a story is about Koreans and Asians I as a black woman I as an immigrant related so much to the narrative and the story mm-hmm. that was being explored and it was just that I love when I, that's one of the things I love about being a film critic where it's like where films and tv shows show you that the world is very much the same for a lot of people it is very the it changes and it's different but it's still some things are very much the same all around the world like some right. some experiences are universal right mm-hmm. no and, that's a that's a great point because I mean like to all the people who said they just couldn't relate to turning red to Mai's character 
I'm like, okay, so you didn't have the exact same experience as a character in a film because what because this character in the film doesn't represent your experience. That doesn't mean other people can't find little nuances in the story. Like you said, like this is a story about, you know, that features Asian immigrants, Korean and Japanese people, but you're still able to identify with some of the nuance of the story and how like that has like is compared to your experience. Look at that. <laughs> And it didn't right. have to be someone that looked just like you. Yes, and it is. I can't wait. To, I really can't wait to get into the book. It's dense. I'm going to be going home in April. And this is, I'm planning to start reading this on the plane. If I can't sleep, this is what I'll be reading on the plane. And mm-hmm. um, Minjani has another book. Um, It's called Millionaires for, I can't remember. But that's another one I intend to get eventually. So those are my books. It's not, as I said, not full reviews. And I kind of did the same thing with um, the other two books that I did for February. And as I said, I, my brain isn't working as the way I would like it to work now. And I wish I could read, but it is what it is. But I still have, these things are so great to, um, to read, to pick up. So as I said, Nubia on the Amazons, Pachinko by Minjini. And the Dark Blood series, um, is, which is distributed by Viz Media, you can purchase them online or, as I said, go to your local bookstores, go to your local comic bookstores, support them, and pick up the copies there. Um, and you can, I'll be linking my review of Pachinko in the um, description as usual and in the blog post for the podcast, and which is, it was posted on joysauce.com. And I've been like tweeting the show. I forgot to like tweet it this past Friday because I was hungry and I walked to the Metro so I get something to eat I got, I got wings um, and pizza and I got home and I was like wait I forgot to do something and I was like oh wait I forgot to live tweet pachinko but it's um I'll do the next week but it's um available on apple tv plus it's a great show it's their second korean drama but, but it's their first technically their first japanese drama as well because pachinko is mm-hmm. mostly in korean and japanese and with a little bit of English. And I love that. I love that it is they give equal weight to Japanese and Korean language. And the way that they use the, uh, the languages in the show, I think is phenomenal. I can't wait to speak to Sophie about that because she's there's very subtle nuances in how the, the show is um, subtitled and like which characters speak in which English and which language mm-hmm. because Korean is in yellow and Japanese in blue. Um, but it's, for, it's very well done. Pick up the copies if you can and that will be it for our book section next we will discuss shows and nisha will go into the show that she wants to discuss and then i'll take my turn nice um so yeah i'm gonna just dive right on in i can't wait to first off i can't wait to watch the show um because i i'm also a fan when shows do that when there's multiple nationalities or citizens from other countries where it's just like let them speak in their in their language instead of just everybody speaking the same language because i think it just makes sense because I just watched a movie that uh, movie that did that. It's something pirates, but it was a Korean drama um, on Netflix. And there were Korean pirates and there were Japanese pirates. And then they had a, had a they even had a translator, but then you have the subtitles. So like, love that. Sorry. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I haven't seen this film because this is the second part. So this is there's a first film. The yes. first film is on Vicky. It's I the first film is on Vicky, but the second one is on Netflix. And it's kind of funny that Netflix put the second um produced the second film, but somehow didn't platform the first film. It makes no sense because unless you see the first film, you're not gonna on a fully you're you're gonna miss a whole lot of context. It's like a flashback, and I'm still like, I feel like I missed something. And again, did not know about the second film until you I mean until the first film until you said something. So like, yeah, it's it's still a good watch, but it's like it's called the Pirates colon 
the last royal treasure. So if it's a good like, you know, if y'all was fans of Pirates of the Caribbean, this is right up that alley of just like high seas fantasy and adventure, but better in my yeah, opinion. And it's like comical. There, there's nothing serious comical. about it. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna get into my two shows. Um and just because, again, anime heavy, I do apologize, but I'm also not sorry, y'all. But first one, I recently wrote a review on it and um, a few weeks ago. It is called Kartaro Lives Alone. It is an anime. My review, did you watch it? I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen clips for it. I've seen the clip where he's feeding the cats, like, no, not feeding, he's sharing his birthday cake with the cats and he's like, so sweet. I'm like, oh my gosh, this kid is a adorable my son my nephew yes yes he's also my nephew we can share him he's our nephew now but yeah so I I'm going to say it right off the bat I went to the show with zero knowledge of it had no background information about it I just picked it up and I watched it and I fell in love with it because I will say I'm going to read the synopsis and I'll get into it so Katara Lives Alone is a Japanese Netflix original anime directed by Tomoe Makino written by Hiroshi Sato and animated by Linden Films so the voice acting cast like some people you might like you may know of them but it's a long list I will include them in the notes <laughs> it's just a long list and I'd rather y'all just see their names there um, but it's 10 episode comedy drama and an adaptation of the Japanese manga series written and illustrated by manga Ka Mami um, Sumaru. And um, so Katara Lives Alone centers on a, on a lonely little four-year-old boy who moves into a ramshackle apartment building by, all by himself without either a mother or father. I know, <laughs> just wait. He's determined to not be treated as a weak child and refuses to help refuses help from adults shortly after introducing himself to his neighbors he forms a special bond with the broke manga artist who lives next door to his unit i give a vague review like overview of that because y'all this show hits deep and like at first glance this show might make you think it's a weird gag anime about a four-year-old living by himself kind of like you know um if y'all remember shin chan it's a animated series where like, it's weird that this kindergartner has this vocabulary this big and makes comments about things. So like, I was like, oh, maybe it's gonna be like Shin-Chan. I was so wrong. It is not, it is not a gag anime. Um, Kotaro Lives Alone is a gem. It is a gem and I need everyone to understand this and go watch it and appreciate it. But in order to do that, you do have to suspend some of the belief. Cause I, know, I really do- Alone by himself. Like, right oh, where's the protective services i'm going to get to that because they do touch on that and i think it's like it's my interpretation of like not because it could have been very easy to from the manga series to just like an anime to age him up even by like eight years old but i think the decision to keep him four is to show how much pe children have to mature when they come from oh and sorry warning content warning the show does deal with abuse Mm. So domestic abuse, child abuse, um, and things of that nature. So then getting to my point, the show, like keeping Kotaro at his at four, year old, four years old instead of aging him up, I think is a deliberate decision to really show how abuse in like in certain situations cause children to age older and become more mature than they should be. Kotaro is four years old. He should not know how to cook, cook food for himself. He should not, he should not know a lot of things and it's just like, 
even though like as much as he knows and as much as his vocabulary is at a four-year-old and he's able to communicate with other people it's just it's heartbreaking because you just see that this child has had to live a long life and at, and at first you're watching him like okay what's the deal is he like a magical reincarnated grown man in a child's body is he an alien is he a kappa i don't know it's <laughs> A cap was like a, a Japanese folklore creature. I was just like, what's the deal with Kotaro? Because his eyes, his eyes, yeah, his eyes, are, huge. And his like eyes are huge and they have those lines. And I was just like, well, what's the deal with him? And then like his hat, I'm like, oh, is the real deal going to be like, there's some magic going on? No, there's no magic except the magic of found family mm. and relationships. But it just hits you in the chest because it's a very unique take on how someone who has come from a traumatic past dealing also dealing with grief mm -hmm. and then with the help of community and found family around him he's able to like improve and able to trust people and move forward in his life but it's also very heartbreaking because again this is a four-year-old who has an apartment room by himself and you know even though as much as he wants to like not be seen as a weak child, which comes from, just to give y'all some background, it was main, it seemed from what's been told in the story so far, it seems that Kataro's father was abusive to his mother. Mm. And the mother was also abusive to Kotaro. It's not exactly clear to see like if the, like the, but the father also seemed to show abusive actions towards Kotaro in flashbacks too, but the mother would put herself in the way of him from it happening to him. But it's like, so it's complex. Yeah. It's not just like, and then like he, but then Kotaro will talk about his fond memories of his father and how the games that he would play. And it was before the dark, darkness took over him. We don't know what he's indicating to the darkness, but he he much like other victims of abuse blame himself for not being strong enough mm. to be with his father and to and for being scared by what was happening around him or like when he talks about his mother fondly he's like I miss my mother and I want to see her again one day and I want to show her that I'm stronger but then like when you hear stories like my mother would put on gloves to bathe me like so your mother never touched you like mm -hmm. never physically touched yeah, him and he and he doesn't understand that. So, you know, it gives you insight into like their, like this child came from an abusive environment and just like a child would, he's processing it all, but he doesn't really understand the, the, the brevity or I can't think of another word, like the depth of all of it yet. Cause he's a child, he's four years old, but you do see how it affects him like in different ways. But the best part about the series to me is like how he slowly starts to develop a sense of community around him with his other neighbors, especially the manga artist next door, because Kataro really needed somebody who could identify with him. And the manga artist asked him like, so where are your parents? Like, what's the deal? Why are you here alone? Like, this has to be a joke. Your parents just work late and you are like super responsible. He's like, no, I don't have a mother or father. So then the manga artist kind of like clicks for him and he's like, it's okay. I lost my parents when I was young too. And that's when the like, Kotaro kind of looks at him. I'm like, oh, so you know the, the loneliness that I feel. Like, yeah. you, know, you know how it feels to like feel what I'm feeling right now. And then, you know, other adults that Kotaro becomes able to like trust and get to know, they also, it's like revealed that they have a past. Everybody basically has a past and a story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the beautiful thing about it is that 
you know, everyone has a past and a story and like you see how they're healing with one another and like with this community around them. And like, it's not without its comedy, but I will tell you, Kataro will just sometimes say something very bluntly and I'm just like, oh God, like yeah. I- My chest, I, my chest. I yelled at the screen, I'm like, what the base? When he said, when they said like, well, Kotaro, when's your birthday? We should celebrate it. I'm like, I never thought of my birthday as being something to celebrate. I never thought of being alive as something to celebrate. I was like, the baby, no one celebrated the baby's birthday or made him feel like he was worth celebrating. Like, oh, the baby, oh, my heart, my chest. And then the way he talks to other kindergartners, he's like, stop crying. Your mom is working really hard to take care of you. I'm just like, He's just so grown up. And then there was an episode about, you know, how dentists will spend more time with children. So like, it does give insight into like how halfway homes abuse, like like in like Japanese culture, like how, like it's it's giving a little insight into, um, you know, that. And I think a peak, I'm not saying it's like word for word, obviously, because I have no idea to go off of, but I think it's showing a side of this where people, you know, there's the trope of, oh, I'm just a kid who lives in their own apartment because their parents aren't around. And it's an anime and it's accepted where it's like, this is like, no, this is real life. This is a real issue. <laughs> this child lives alone. And like, they're aware of child services, but he ran away from his group home. Um, where? I don't. <laughs> because his, his father, but it's like, he ran away because his father found the group home and he was, he felt bad because he caused trouble to the people at the group home. How did he find this house that he's living in? That's that's my whole thing. Like, who's paying his rent? Is he paying rent? Um, he is paying rent. I don't want to give no spoilers away. He is paying rent. Just find, just know that there's a generous benefactor that gives Kotaro the money to pay rent and buy groceries. But a four-year-old is balancing a checkbook, apparently, you know. But again, he's still four years old, so he'll be gullible to some stuff. Oh my God, sorry. One last thing that made my jaw drop. You found out that one way he survived when his mom didn't feed him or when she left him at home for hours was that he would eat tissue. Oh, Yeah. So that's going to come back and that'll come into play in the beginning where he gives everybody tissues <coughs> as a welcome gift. And I'm just like, the baby. <laughs> But anyways, that's Kotaro Lives Alone. I could go on and on. But the other one, and I'll quickly dive into it, um, Ranking of Kings is a Japanese fantasy manga series written and illustrated by Sasuke, I mean, Sosuke Toka. It has, and it's a coming of age fantasy comedy and coming of age and a fantasy comedy. And the story is about a little prince named Boji, who is the son of two great giants. But um, but he's born small and he's born and he's also deaf. Um, but above all, um, because despite many criticisms from his the kingdom's people about his ascension to the throne, he does his best and dreams of becoming the greatest of kings. One day he meets Kage. Kage is like this little shadow demon thing. Um, but he's <laughs> um, a survivor of a wiped out assassin clan who understands his words despite Boji being unable to speak due to his disability. The story follows the pair as they navigate the world and all of its adventures in darkness. So, both like, I'm Boji Hive, everybody needs to be Boji Hive, he's precious, but and he attack. But it's a really great anime, and I think this is a great example of character, there is more to each character than we think. Sometimes, like, because, and I think that's that is one of the most powerful things about this series is because 
the whole point in the beginning is that everybody doubts Boji's ability to be a king because he was born deaf and he was born small, even though his father was the great one of the greatest kings of all time and his mother was a great warrior. They were both literally giants. So it's like when he was born and he's like a regular sized baby, Every, and then you find, they found out he was deaf. And like some of the people even think he's mute because he chooses not to speak to them. Um, so they just thought like, oh, who is this deaf kid? Like, how is he going to be the king? How is he going to lead us? Like his father was so great, what can he do? So the whole point is like everyone doubts Boji and his abilities because of his disability and his size. But as the story goes on, Boji, meets people who helps him along like Kage who's like he understands Boji and he's able to communicate with Boji and then you see like as the story develops like Boji Boji been listening he been reading lips he know what everybody been saying about him so <laughs> while he's act he's acted like he's naive he knows what people think of him and he does not let that stop him it hurts him like it hurts him deeply but he's so he's it's his hope and his determination to be a great king and to help and protect others that makes him such a great character. And it's also that when he comes across his teacher who who like teaches him like people have probably told you this is the strongest you'll ever be, ever be. That's not the, like that's not the case. I can tell you you could become stronger with the abilities that you have. And they talk about how his being deaf has helped him in other ways and like why he's faster, why he's more intuitive in like defending himself and like all these other things. And like his teacher tells like, Boji's probably the most skilled student I have because of everything, all the life skills and things he, he's developed because of his disability. And it's just, it's one of those things of like, I like that this series doesn't do this thing of like, oh, Boji's looking for a way to become normal or he wishes to like, and I say normal in the sense of like how other people call him like, oh, I wish he was normal like his brother. Like Boji doesn't dream of being like his father. He doesn't dream of being like his bro his younger brother. He just wants to be a great king. Because you know, I feel my biggest fear when we have characters who are differently abled in series is please don't do this thing where you're trying to heal them of what they have and I hate that so I'm glad that this series does not do that I hate that I hate when they're like oh my gosh now all of a sudden I was injured and now no I'm not I was deaf and all of a sudden oh my at the end of the series or film they're like oh they found some way to make them like not deaf again like no there's nothing wrong with being deaf there's nothing wrong with being blind there's nothing, nothing. wrong with being paralyzed there's nothing you know there, like there's nothing wrong but like I that's I will say that is a problem I I, I have with Korean content in particular that's where i would say japan has is doing way better mm -hmm. than korea where it's like they are getting better at acknowledging that people who are disabled there's nothing wrong with them you know mm -hmm. that there is nothing wrong with a character not being able to hear there's right. nothing wrong with the character having um um like vision um vision um impairments because there's one a japanese drama that i watched recently I do not remember the name, but the character is she's the main female lead and she has um, this, I can't remember the exact term, but she has a like vision impairment where mm -hmm. like the world, but she only sees the world like very, very blurry. So it's, it's like, look, she like, so she, she has like a very shallow depth of uh, feel of vision and it's like mostly blurry. So she can only see things like if she brings them like super close, if they're like blown up and then brings them super close. And it talks about the challenges of working in a society that isn't adapted for people mm -hmm. with disabilities, especially people who are blind. But then it did do talk about how, like in Japan, and it's so great they did too. They they have them, 
and there I don't think I've seen them here in Toronto in Toronto where like on reg on regular streets there's these yellow this yellow line yeah that you can follow it's like braille they're called braille blocks and oh, like, that's amazing. it's like a yellow line but the blocks are raised so like people who use canes mm-hmm. you know like they can find their way around and like they're almost everywhere don't have those here in Toronto Toronto is such a, a metropolitan city. We don't have anything like that for blind people. What we do right. have is like at the end of sidewalks, you just have this little piece of like metal where it's just like, it has like raised dots. Mm-hmm. And like for crossing, like for you can press a button, you can hear like the, the bird chirping, which is just right. like, cross, but that's it for accommodation. Like, right. Like, and, and so like, it, it didn't make me think about how like cities like Toronto is supposed to be so metropolitan, so advanced. And they don't even have like braille blocks on every street, especially in downtown Toronto for black mm-hmm. people to navigate. You know, like even here in winter, like people who use wheelchairs, like our sidewalks are not wheelchair accessible in winter because they do not keep the sidewalks clean. They don't maintain them. Right. They don't maintain the sidewalks. The sidewalks are broken. Like they're not maintained very well. And, but the show talks about things like that, but it also talks about finding a job in like in any way like if you you can like you should be a person who is blind a person who's disabled should be able to work in almost any field that they want to she mm-hmm. wants to work in food production she started working at a fast food um at a, at a fast food restaurant you know and it showed that how there's simple things that can be made can be done to accommodate uh people who are blind people who are disabled mm-hmm. like simple things like just if print the menu blow up the menu make it bigger you mm-hmm. know for a receipt just make the printing on the receipt bigger you know, put these right. little braille dots um for the for the machine so she can read so she can press the correct um instructions like simple things like that and and it's and it's, and it doesn't say out loud but like if you pay attention they say accommodate to to be accommodating to be accessible takes very little effort mm-hmm. right it does right and it talks and it talks a lot about about um being um about love, about finding a relationship with someone who is sighted, and then like the difference between a person who truly respects you as mm-hmm. the person as you are and sees you sees your disability, but also doesn't see you as your disability, and right. then with someone who who sees your disability as a burden, right? right. And so, uh, like, yeah, so there's so like one scene, especially as a romantic partner, because there's very this very episode. There's this episode where her friend, who is also blind. Like she went out with them, with her and the boyfriend. They went out and like they went running, and he she wanted to take a seat. And there's these people sitting in like the park bench. And he went to and he was just like, and like they got up and they saw her coming, so they could see that she was blind. So they got up so that they could go to another bench so she could sit because it's closer. And mm-hmm. the boyfriend didn't apologize. He's like he's like okay, thank you so much. And like you know, and he just took her to the seat and she sat down. And her friend was like, you don't even know how how such a big what a big thing that is because like you didn't apologize for me being blind, right? right. Like my boyfriend, he apologized. Anytime anything like that happened, he would apologize. He's like, I'm so sorry. As you can see, she's blind. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she's like, that to me was more harmful to me than if he hadn't apologized because you're you're apologizing for my disability, which is anything to be, apolog- to, to be apologetic about, right? And it showed you the differences in how people's reactions to people who are disabled can actually be as harmful as people who are um who stigmatize people who are disabled so i right. love that and i love that there's a show like that that shows that you can have people who are deaf and who can be leaders you know and also there are people that choose not to speak like everyone who doesn't mm-hmm. speak doesn't mean that they're mute you know some people just be like i ain't got nothing to say to you so i don't feel like that that'd be it like he chooses when he speaks and like because like people think he like the fact that people that like oh he's 
deaf and he's mute and he's tiny so like how can he be a king and how can he do this and how can he lead us and I'm like Boji the things that make Boji different from y'all are his strengths and it's like he's more intuitive to the reactions on people's faces like and it shows like how he has like had to like develop these things on his own so just like and like oh everyone thinks he's this incapable and like they even call him this dumb child and it's just like he's not He's very clever. He's very capable. It's just that he has needed, once he found the people that could support him and back him and help him believe in himself when he doubts himself, he can achieve any, he can achieve greatness. And that's what it takes is just like exactly what you said. Instead of having people that look at him as like burdensome or dumb or incapable, it's like he's able to do anything. And I think that's the most important thing. Believing that this child can do anything and showing your support and your love for him can help him go anywhere. And it's like, so again, as I said, the story, the characters are complex and I will just give this like, it's not a spoiler, but when you first meet Boji's stepmom, because his mother died, um, you first meet Boji's stepmom, you think she is the wicked evil queen stepmom. Like she just seems to give off that energy when she first introduced, like she's reprimanding him because he came home and he's naked because he believes somebody needed his clothes. So he just gave, he, he just literally has on his underwear and he's so proud of himself because he helped somebody and he gave them his clothes to sell. And he's like, she's like reprimanding him and saying like, now you look ridiculous. Imagine how this makes the kingdom look this, that, and this and that. And because we aren't aware of everything yet, we're just like, dang, like what happened? I'd be like, you can, I'm like, how about you go and take him to buy something instead of literally giving him the clothes? Cause then what are you going to wear? Are you walking around like indecent exposure people? And he doesn't, Boji is the type that will give those clothes, literally gives the clothes off his backs to help somebody. And that's just like what makes him such a sweet child. But it's like, so then as the story goes on, you understand that like the Queens can like, she did not always know how to express this. And I think she lost sight of that as she got older. And as Boji got older, and she's like, I need you to grow up and be the prince that you can be so that people can see you as capable. But she didn't, she didn't understand how her reprimanding, how the way she talked about him. And because she did not know that he could read her lips that whole time, um, how it really affected him and his self-esteem. And then... It's like in the beginning of their relationship, you see how she really made an effort to like learn sign language and to help him and to like be there for him. She wanted to be the mother for him after her his mother was gone, not to replace her. Like she said, I'm not here to replace your mother, but I am your new mother and I love you and I want to be here for you. And you see how their relationship developed. So she was somebody that Boji trusted, but like once that person that you love kind of treats you, like you said, with the boyfriend, like apologizing because his girlfriend is blind, Instead, like that's equivalent to like what Boji's stepmother did, where she made him feel that he was incapable of doing things and then and that his brother was more suited to be king. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, and then the, the story flips itself because later on Boji comes back and she sees like, I was the one that stopped him from like reaching this level. I was, I was the blockade. I was the one that made him feel so incapable and like he couldn't do anything and then she realizes how she messed up and she like tells him like like you're able to do it and like that helps him like get reassurance in himself so it's great y'all just go watch it just you can watch it subbed you can watch it dubbed it's on Crunchyroll. it's amazing join boji hive with me and i am done (laughs) yeah the one the japanese drama that i mentioned i'm going to i just put a little we've mentioned it because i think it's really good and it would be a good watch with um the one you're talking about 
Um, but that's not going to be the dramas that I'm talking about. The, the two dramas I'm going to talk about is I, um, Pachinko and Bel Air. So I'm not going to go full on into a Pachinko review because I talked a bit about it when I talked about the book and I'll link the review that I did. But I did want to mention that the castle, like the, the story does, as I said, Pachinko is about this matriarch Sinja and it, it shows mostly like her teenage years and then her years as an old woman who is played by Yunyuja and Kim and um, Kim Mina plays teenage Sinja. I just love this character. She's so nuanced and she's so complex. She's she's so smart, but she's also so naive because of like her background. Because she does she doesn't have a formal education when she was younger. She meets this man, um, Kohan, Kohansu, who is just like, oh, he's trash. Um, he's a scallywag, a scoundrel, but they kind of like portrayed him a bit more suavely, I think, in the show than in the book. And the the show version is played by um Imeno. Who is considered a heartthrob? I'm like, yeah, he's extremely good looking. He's extremely pretty to look at, but his acting does nothing for me. I'm being honest, people. Even though it bores me to tears, I've seen other dramas with him, and no, he does not do it for me. He he doesn't. He's a pretty face. Nothing wrong with that, but he's a pretty face to me. I'm sure there are other people who would who like are fans of his. Yeah, they're like, oh my god, he's like a handsome. I'm like, yeah, but are we really looking at his acting abilities? Or, but I'm not gonna go into that. But then the rest of the, the, the cast is um, Big Solomon, who is played by um, Jin Ha, who um, he is um, Sinja's grandson, and he is the also the main protagonist of the story. So technically, this show, the book, the story is about three main characters, which is Solomon and Sunja, Young and Osunja and Solomon. And it talks a bit about, and like the show already goes into like the differences in generations and um and the and understanding how the world works from a, a, as an old woman and then as a young experienced man because in the show in the, he's around 35 I think 20 no I know I think he's about 20 30 so it's about this it's about he works at a bank and he thinks he knows all so much about the world but it's like do you really Solomon because like you these people are being passive aggressive as hell towards you that you're not picking up on it right but then it's, it shows about how he's also condescending and it also and it's also about a lot about how immigrants when they move away so especially to North America they lose so much of their heritage because they have no one to like they're they're trying to fit in so it talks a bit again about assimilation versus integration assimilation is where you're you're asked to remove everything about your identity as a person of color, everything about your identity as an ethnic person to fit into North American society because that's how white people want you to fit in. And even while you even if, even while you remove everything that makes you who you are, you still don't fit in because you're still a person of color. Right. So it talks a lot about that. And like, and it's, it doesn't it very, very smart. Right? I think Su Hu did a fantastic job adapting it. The cast is phenomenal. Another character, um, Naomi, played by Anna Sewai, she is um, she works at the at the Japanese bank that Solomon works at. And she she's a great example of how women um, still have to climb ladders, you know, like women still women have to find a way to fit in to these male dominated spaces. And even while they fit in, even while they're successful, while they, even if they're more successful than the men, they are still not regarded as being um, worthy of attention. They're not being uh, worthy of like the accolades, you know, they're still judged based on being women and like every interaction they have with a man is judged through a sexual lens. And that happens a lot between her and Solomon. Like their discussions a lot are very subtly about that. Like he thinks he's this amazing guy, but I'm like, you're judging her about something that she has no control over. She can't control how men look at her, right? She can't control how men interact with her. And he's kind of judging her and he's looking down on her. I'm like, you sir are no better because these people are treating you like trash and you still think that you're better than her because you're a man. 
so it goes into that a lot and like the show's really well done it was produced um as i said by apple tv plus parts of it were filmed in south korea and parts of it were filmed in vancouver and it's a really good show it's only eight episodes so it's a pretty good it's a pretty good watch it's releases uh, the first three episodes were released the first day um on apple tv plus and then every friday they release a new episode um so as i said i'll link my review to it in for the overall show in the description and then i'll probably i'll plan to do a couple pieces because i think it's really dense and it's really good material for writing about different things i'll be doing that but the other show i'm going to talk about today well i forgot to mention so the the show is the show is directed by koganada and justin chong so koganada he did a film called after Yai, which i saw at sundance and i absolutely love it it made me cry i i love i loved it um i'll link to my discussion with the production um designer for after yang in the description um boss and in the blog post as well um i just love the, the show is visually stunning like it's so it looks so good and there's the score and the music is so well done and the editing i think the editing is my favorite part of it um when it comes to the technical aspects because like the way how they transition this the the scenes and the way they this transitions are telling stories about the characters themselves it talks a lot about the past and the future and the present and it's so well done. I just like my props to the uh, um, editing team. Like everyone did a fantastic job. The um, the costume designer too. They tell their own stories through the clothing. I love when everything about a show works like that. Where if you pay attention to these small things, like you realize the clothing tells a story, the editing tells a story, the music tells a story, and it all works together perfectly. Um, the other show I'm going to talk about is Bel Air, and so this is one that when um, it kind of created an internet sensation because the person who created it he just did like this video on this like this sharp video it wasn't even a proof of concept it's just he just did like let me he was like what if we what if bel-air the fresh prince of bel-air was a dramatic show instead of the comedy that we all knew it to be and i and think like, he also oh, did it i think he also did it with arthur like what if arthur was a cw series yeah 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 and, and i was like, like class i want to watch both and people were like, like happening here i like it was all of thing because people are like why would you go and make this it looks so serious it doesn't look good and like, it did have its naysayers i personally didn't have an opinion on it i for me the whole concept the whole thing because it was just like this is interesting and then it got picked up like they were like the will smith and the people who were thinking like how about we actually make this into a show mm-hmm. you know and it happened and it's i think it's so good it's um the cast let me get the the cast list um, so the character of Will, Will Smith, who is who the character that was originated by the actor Will Smith, he is played by Jabari Banks, which I think is ironic because, you know, in the story, Philip Banks, Banks, he lives to go over, he goes to live with his father, his cousins and his aunt and uncle in mm-hmm. Bel Air. You feel like when you say the words, you feel like singing the song. Yeah. But, and they're the Banks family in Bel Air. So like to, for the main actor to be named Jabari Banks, yeah. it is hilarious i think and like it's i think it's hilarious but it's like kind of like serendipitous but he's so good mm-hmm. he had as i said so the show's dramatic so it's not it has its comedic moments but it's not comedy right and a right. lot of the comedic moments come across with the way how they deliver lines because you know black people are naturally funny and there's some things that will fly right over people say but for black people be like oh that's hilarious and we get you that, right. that like right we gotta catch it <laughs> we catch it we catch the references and we're like oh mm-hmm. this is funny because it's a whole cultural thing yes we are diasporic and like black people are not a monolith but there's some things that are just like 
comedy mm. to black people specifically like, we just like we get it we know right wow. and he's so great and then there's cassandra freeman who plays at vib she's a dark skin at vib yes we all know what like listen we all know who watched the original show we all know like no, no shade to second aunt viv but first aunt viv was beloved because she was a dark-skinned black woman it's the fact that i thought they had a divorce and they didn't tell us and he just married another woman who was named aunt viv because no shade to that woman no shade to that woman no shade to they her they yeah. didn't treat her like aunt viv like the first aunt viv because she didn't have that many lines <laughs> or didn't feel like she didn't have that much of a story art like they did her dirty mm. But anyways, it, sorry. Far, but it was great to see a dark skin at Viv. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then um, there is Joffrey, who is the butler, but he's not a butler. He's more like a handler. And okay. He's family <laughs> sister, and he's played by Jimmy Agenbola and he is um, Jamaican English. So like first of first, you got this man who's short, dark and compact. And he's like this entire cast. Everybody's good looking. Everybody is hella fine and he is fine too. And I what I love about his character is that because he is Jamaican English, mm -hmm. his character is Jamaican English. He is not putting on um an American accent. He is an ex he is an immigrant. Right. So that plays into his story a bit. And like what I love about it is like his he'll he'll slip into some patois. You know, he'll say lines and I'm like, yes, I love hearing the patchwork coming through mm -hmm. in like some line delivery. And then there's like um Oli Shawzan who plays Carlton. Like, you know, when in the first series, Carlton is annoying. He's funny, but he's annoying. You mostly don't like um Carlton in the original series. This mm -hmm. one, they've made him so complex. He's so nuanced. He's when I'm not gonna lie, in the first two episodes, first two, three episodes, I hated Carlton's guts. I'm like your little seller. I'm like you little. I'm like you little beep beep beep. And like, cause he was mm -hmm. mean, and he was, and I called him a seller because like you were like thinking, okay, so like you got these white people out here calling you the n word, cause like I'm like, son, let me your niggas, like you in there nigga too, like why you out here tap tapping shoes and like cooning for these for these um these right. white boys at the school, but Which then you realize why. Which is very interesting because in the original one, Carlton just kind of like. I mean, I would say he code switched, but it's not code switch. That was Carlton's environment. That was the way he talked. But it was just like Carlton didn't really seem to have a connection with his blackness. Like, blackness, yes. For like, but it's like now that I think like it's been some years, we can understand like okay, look at where Carlton grew up. Look at how he's been, like how he's been raised. He's he's been able to have an affluent lifestyle for most of his life, so he don't understand the struggles that Will got. And it's and, and, it is bizarre to Wills, but like Carlton gonna be like, ha, 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 let's go get, you know, let's go to the club after school. Yeah, I, I do a terrible rich white person voice. <laughs> but Carlton felt like he was put on a voice. And I think the show, because the show is dramatic, it mm -hmm. kind of like makes it more serious. The whole idea yeah. of like when you look at like young, especially young black men and yep. growing up in affluent neighborhoods and they're going to these schools and which are predominantly white he is one of the very few black kids at the school mm -hmm. and like he is in a position part because his dad phil is running for attorney general of california so he's trying to maintain this image and he thinks he has to you know do the to like let to be able to fit in he has to kind of like to be the perfect black to be the, the shining black. example he has to be the perfect black but then he has his i will come into jesus moment eventually where he's like you know what this shit is for the birds mm -hmm. this is but then you realize he also has severe social anxiety. And that's that's another thing. I love that where this show is as, um, at going into mm. 
health amongst young black people and it's not only with carlton but it's also with will because you know again the show starts out because you know there is some a drama upon the basketball court and mm-hmm. will gotta go stay with his auntie and uncle and going to bel-air you know and in this one that we find the drama is because um it, this this um beef with this guy on the basketball court and this guy is trying to start beef and will gets in trouble to defend his mm. friend and like, it talks and it talks a bit about how moving away again like he's not an immigrant he's not moving to another country but just moving from your city moving from the only home you've ever known does create this fundamental shift for young people and yeah. it's all about like who are who would now as a young person from west philly who grew up in a certain environment is now learning to adapt into this new environment yes he may be around family but this is family he hasn't seen for years this is an extremely rich family he's going to again another school that is predominantly white and he's trying to learn to fit into his family his family now and in this environment in school and like how to hold on to who you are not losing your identity and that does create things and then he also has a trauma because he was held on by the police he was violently um he was treated violently by them he was um he was mm-hmm. arrested he went through this whole person that cross trauma so the show does explore trauma and mental health issues within young black with young black people so i love that they do that especially for carlton like he at least i started out hating him but by the end i'm just like, i want to hug this baby and feed him <laughs> well, i'm just like oh carlton and a lot of that has to not only with the writing the amazing writing and directing but just only shows and he's done such a fantastic job as carlton i think mm-hmm. he might be my favorite character um and, and again amazing performances across the board but he's done such an amazing job and then there's coco jones who plays hillary banks again hillary is another character where you didn't really love her that you tolerated her you're like okay hillary you are here i accept you this is what it is you're a part of your pack you're part of the package deal when it comes to watching mm-hmm. but this one you love this hillary again dark skin hillary played by coco jones who is amazing like hillary she's bougie but she's likable you know, she keep it real. She's mm-hmm. like honest about herself and she's honest with her parents and she's honest about her wealth and she doesn't flaunt her wealth, but she also doesn't apologize for it. I'm gonna, you know what? Sorry, you just inspired me to actually watch the show because I've been seeing the mixed reviews on it. And I think this is what's been missing for me is because I like, I already knew like everybody to understand like this isn't a reboot. It's a retell- It's a new retelling of the story, which to me, it just made me think like, this sounds like all American, like in a sense, hmm. um, the all American show that has Tadix on CW with them. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like he's a football player who was like in um, Inglewood, I think, or like he was in it. He was somewhere like that, but you know, he went from one part of LA to another part of LA and he's in a more affluent neighborhood, more affluent school. And like, it's a bit of a culture shock. It's a bit of a people bumping heads about like, you ain't really black, you not black. Like, like there's, it's more than just that, but it's like, you know, drama. It has comedy moments, but it's drama. But like this, your, you talking about um, Bel Air probably has encouraged me to watch it more now because the comments from everybody else is like, y'all, I, you just have to, you have to separate the old one from the new one and that this is more updated. I don't think you need to separate the old from the new. I think, I think what to me helps is like, knowing why the first one was that it was comedy right what this one is and actually 
thinking of the first one helps you understand it because it shows you how they actually grew the characters and the yeah. changes that they made within them. So don't forget the first one. Actually, right. remember the first one. Appreciate it. I love it for it. But then knowing that and then seeing what they've done with the characters, because again, they talk, I, they, they're showing how they're not being colorist by having this predominantly dark skin cast, but these are rich people. I think that's amazing because right. you know in North American TV, like rich people are generally, if they're black, They'll usually like cast a light-skinned person or they meet the family blended and it's like, you know, white mom, black yeah, dad. And it's like, and- no, all of these dark, and they're like, no, all these amazing dark-skinned people playing these amazing characters. And like, for me, and like, it talks about wealth, it talks about um politics, because like one of the uh, subplot is about um police brutality and violence and how, as Black people, in mm-hmm. affluent thing, like how they work within um when they come into contact with people who work with with the police like will he meets mm-hmm. lisa again another character who was she was lisa no she was brown skin she was a light skin in the mm-hmm. first one but this one i love this character i i i wish i had asked this question when we interviewed them for after but she's a swimmer and that is such a big thing for black women on screen because she's again dark skin but she's a national champion swimmer um for the school and like we know how black women are stigmatized for here one but then how Black people aren't portrayed as being swimmers because of the things that has happened with, especially in Black North American history with how Black people were treated and Black people were barred from um, swimming pools. Right. It's racist to say that we can't swim when it's like we never had the access to swim like everybody else did. So there's there's like two generations of us who didn't swim because we didn't have access to swimming lessons or a place to swim safely exactly and the thing is is like that's not only exclusive to north Americans. um in the caribbean too because for black people the only way black people could swim was in the sea you know like we were prevent we were prevented from going to like swim pools because there weren't any public swimming pools in barbados until like the early mid 90s when we had the aquatic center open you know and that was open to the public but before that all swimming pools in Barbados were private because they're either owned by hotels or they were owned by the most affluent people in the country. And mm-hmm. the majority of those people were, were and still are white in Barbados. So yeah. without the Aquatic Center, Black people didn't have, and this is in Barbados, in an island, we did not have access to swimming pools. Right. But our only access to swimming and learning to swim was in the sea. So our, uh, the sea is a big part of Bajan culture. But again, like, so I learned to swim mostly at the sea like my mom she even she took my sister and I to swim at the aquatic center but I learned to sweet I learned to swim at the sea my brother and his friends would take my sister and I to the beach on Sundays and then we went to YWCA with the camp every summer we would go to the YMCA and YWCA swimming um, camp so they would take us um, for beach excursions I would hold swimming lessons for kids and that's how the majority of kids in Barbados learn to swim either with family or going to summer camp with the YMCA or YWCA right um so and then it was only in, I left school in 2000, around 2000, one of our, one of the only Black female swimmers at that time, internationally um, um, competitive swimmers, was a Bajan, Leah Martindale, I think that was her name, I think that was her name, but it was a big thing to see this Black woman swimming at the Olympics, mm-hmm. and it's still, a, it's still a big thing now, because like, we know how Black women are still stigmatized, even by the IOC, because like, you know there was a thing with the last Olympics where they didn't want Black women to wear swimming caps, you know, right. like, they were still trying to stigmatize Black women from like, they tried to say it was an advantage, exactly, like, I just like, want my hair to be dry, I don't exactly. want to get my you know hair wet, I put my hair down to my hair, right, so, like, but- I should be able to have braids, put it under a swim cap that would fit my braids, that I, that I obviously would know, I wouldn't get my butt long braids, but point is, it's not an advantage. 
it's exactly. literally making it more accessible for people with different hair types exactly so like seeing like simon joy jones play lisa she is a swimmer and like almost every time we see her well not almost every time but every at least once mm-hmm. every episode every other episode where she's uh, featured in the main storyline she's swimming we like we see her swimming, we see her swimming in the water and i think that's amazing even if she doesn't get an award at least we know that she's swimming and she's like i'm like this is such a big thing for me and then there is a character of Ashley played by Kira Akbar. She's a young queer black girl discovering her identity and sexuality as being queer. And like she's coming out to her parents. So not spoiler, but not spoiler. Um, because I'm po- we're gonna be posting this after the show then ended anyway. Yeah. But like she's ex- she's a, a just gently exploring her identity and sexuality as a young queer black girl. And I think it's amazing. And like, she has these really nice scenes with Joffrey where it's like like they don't talk a bit about it but you can tell that she's like trying to get comfortable just like mentioning small dropping small hints and clues and then Mm -hmm. some of those scenes happen with him and then there's even jazz jazz is played by jarnet l jones and jazz is again not irritating jazz is another character that was irritating as hell in the Mm -hmm. first one in this one he's not he is more like a support mcam's comfort for will Mm -hmm. another thing is too he but there's some scenes with where he talks about his trauma and he's very supporting and understanding so this jazz actually serves a purpose to the plot he's not annoying he's not chasing hillary and being annoying and like even in his age situations with harry when she steps out of line sometimes he'll check her on it he'd be like yeah i'm like he's like i'm not here to be your lap dog you know i'm not here just for whims and fancies like i like you but i'm not gonna let you walk all over me too and i love that um and then again i'm wrapping up now um, the other character is Philip Banks, played by Adrian Holmes, who I discovered has Bajan heritage during the Africa roundtable. So he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Adrian, um, but Jimmy, who as I mentioned is like um, Jamaican English, like his parents are Jamaican and he's like thing. Um, he told me that Adrian has Bajan heritage. His parents, he, he was born in Wales, but his parents are Bajan. I'm like, I didn't know. So like, that's another big deal for me again. This Philip Banks is tall, dark, and handsome. Mm-hmm. And he, what I think for me, like we're still learning who he is as a character, I think, but I think Adrian is doing such a great job where like, well, um, as Philip, he's arrogant. He has to be because he's running for um, uh, attorney general yeah. and he's still learning, but even it's showing you how, even as adults, black people still have to learn how to navigate in yeah. Is dominated by white people and even as an adult when like with within the black community how black people because of our wealth because of wealth and affluence they have to learn still how to navigate around the black community because the black community would think that you're a sellout and he's like i'm not i'm still the same person that you did step challenges with at college you know and then he like his character explores that dynamic and for um and viv she's an artist so it talks a bit about how black women like sacrifice so much for their kids and like rediscovery like there's a time i have to get back my time i'm reclaiming my time as a mother mm-hmm. as a woman and like i'm a mother but i'm also a woman and i have my own desires and wants too and she wants to be an artist and she's like like can i be a mother and a successful artist too so like the whole show is very deep it's very layered it's very nuanced and i would encourage anyone to watch it it's on peacock um it's only 11 the first season is only 11 episodes the beauty with streaming platforms is once it's short ears, you can go back and you can watch it even if you miss the first, yep. the first hearing. Like me, I haven't yet to see Abbott Elementary, but that's one of those shows I intend to catch. Girl, next yeah. episode. I've been waiting for the season to end. So I think by the time we put out our next episode, Abbott Elementary time. Yes, I am so going to talk. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's the way that Quinta Brunson has revitalized weeknight TV. Sorry, though. 
don't want to go off too um yeah. to that but um thank you for that review yes, I'm, I'm gonna start watching it today because I think just I I've been wanting to hear it from somebody who's seen all of it and like not just through Twitter through people talking about it because and I and I say separate the two from one another where it's like people stop looking for this to be just like uh, like the 90s version stop looking for this to just be like <laughs> Because it's not gonna be that. It's not gonna be that. Hi, Yoko. <laughs> yes, she wanted, Yoko. She just wanted to get her two cents in. Oh, made her appearance. Did you like Bella, Yoko? Yeah, you did. Okay. One bark for yes. It's one bark for yes. Two barks yeah. for no. You done? Yeah. She's a woman of few words. Um. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So then moving. <laughs> so that was one bark. So yeah, she agrees. Agrees. Okay. So then I guess moving into the film section, let me turn on my timer because I told y'all I was going to do this because I'm going to talk about Morbius. Um, so I'm giving myself a maximum of 10 minutes. I don't think I'm going to need them all, but I just want to dive into Morbius real quick. If you can, if you really want to see this movie, go to a matinee, save your money. Don't pay full price for this movie. Um, it left me with more questions than answers to give y'all. I'll just give the quick synopsis like I did the other things. Morbius is a 2022 American superhero film based on Marvel Comics featuring the character of the same name produced by Columbia Pictures in association with Marvel distributed by Sony. So that can give you an idea of a few things there. Um, it is the third film in Sony's Spider-Man universe. And that's important for y'all to understand that. But yeah, so keep that in mind. It's directed by Daniel Espinosa, um, written by Matt Sazama, and it's of course starring Jared Leto. So yeah, brief plot, as y'all know, Michael Morbius is researching for a cure for a disease, for a rare disease that he and his dear close surrogate brother, Lucian, aka Milo, have been living with with their whole lives. So he dedicates his entire life for researching this disease and is looking for a cure. And how, somehow, looking for this cure, it takes him to baths. And he then runs some tests, does some things, experiments on himself, and he turns into a vampire. That's a very, very, very high-level overview <laughs> of the film. I'm just... Okay, let me just get into this. Um, I don't... I can't, I can't determine if it's the matter of Jared Leto's acting or the writing of why I did not care about Morbius. Because Jared Leto just does like, and I say this, Jared Leto's Joker is more interesting than Morbius. And I feel like the whole point of Morbius is that he's supposed to be this mysterious, um, maybe cryptic sort of kind of person with like experiments and stuff. And I'm like, it's this movie, the problem with this movie to me, besides, you know, Jared Leto and I just not him not making me feel like I cared enough about Morbius is that one if you're going to call it an anti-hero movie and if you're going to do a vampire movie especially because Marvel already has established vampire lore with Blade and it really would have been a great thing if y'all had just acknowledged the lore I'm not saying you have to show Blade I'm not saying you have to mention him but you're in Manhattan this is a Marvel product we've already established that Marvel has vampire lore in the universe 
this would have been a great opportunity to talk about vampires in that sense. Maybe he like just maybe connected a little bit to the lore that already exists in Marvel regarding vampires. Just a little bit. Because even though Morbius is not a vampire in the sense, like at least in the in, in this movie, he's not a vampire in the sense that Blade is a vampire. Blade is a daywalker. He is born from a vampire where Morbius gives himself this treatment that gives him the natures of a vampire and that's where I'm kind of the pseudoscience don't really stick because I guess yeah sure he takes the bat's DNA and it's something about enzymes that will help him and his enzymes and that'll cure him of his disease and you know and heal him but and okay but like how do we get vampire there's no and I say pseudoscience because I'm like, there's no weird supernatural thing that happens. That, that yeah, no, it doesn't make sense because bats are RNA and we are DNA. And that's why in mythology, like you've never really actually tied bats to humans. Right. That's why there's always some kind of supernatural element involved because it doesn't make sense. It like, doesn't first, make sense. Most bats aren't even blood suckers. Most bats are vegetarians anyway. And they and they do this whole thing where like these bats are rare. This they're from this part of South America. They are meat eaters. And I'm like, okay, but what I'm not understanding is where the supernaturalness of this comes in because you just took bat DNA. And for the like, again, I'm not explaining this process because pseudoscience, you took bat DNA, human DNA, you, you blended it, made the DNA spinny thing go, and then you in, inserted it into you, into you to heal you. Where again, I'm still confused to get the bat enzymes and all that. It's not that I need you to explain it to make sense. It's just like, I don't understand how you get supernatural abilities from bat DNA. Where it's like, if there was a supernatural element or occurrence that happened in the experiment, hmm. sure, that, exp that helps explain something. But I need just like a little explanation because it's like, yeah, he's not going to be a vampire like Blade or like the vampires that Blade fights where like he burns in the sunlight. Like, no, he has apparently the abilities that these bats have. It's not like when, Sp when Peter Parker got bit by a spider that was experimented on. It would have made more sense if he experimented on a bat. Yes. And that bat had some kind of supernatural healing capabilities. And then the bat's DNA that he put into him caused him to have it nope you just took some bats mixed it did some sciencey pseudoscience with it and put it in your body and it's that's what and always kind of and that's I don't, like, I don't care how, how outlandish a story is how how crazy a plot is how somebody gets superhuman abilities whatever i just needed to make some kind of sense it needs to be more sense than it's just a regular bat i know i just gotta be able to like, be like okay like in the in the mythology you're creating i buy it Right, if it's supernatural. I buy it. Supernatural already makes you already suspend disbelief. You know, if it's sci-fi, fine. I, there's, I can suspend. Right, disbelief. there's it lacks sci-fi for me. The fantasy is lacking, and mm -hmm. that's where I think it loses me. Like it's, it's, it's lacking because I'm like, maybe I need to do some research. My understanding of Morbius purely comes from the animated series of Morbius with Spider-Man and like you know where there was the arc with Blade so like that's where my understanding comes from it so this was just like this is lacking some sci-fi the five being the fantasy that I need to understand how this bat DNA gave you supernatural abilities right and you so there's that part <laughs> and gives you all the properties of being a vampire but anyways um the other thing just make the movies rated R, Sony, Marvel, mm -hmm. 
make the movies rated R. It's this movie has the same issue that the Venom movies had, but the Venom movies were good because Ed, Ed, Eddie is funny with Venom. It's like a yeah. buddy cop movie. They play off of each other and it gives you something to laugh at, but it's also the seriousness of carnage and all that stuff and like death. And like, but you make it, it's a dark humor. Venom works as a dark humor in mm -hmm. action movie. This doesn't work because you just have Jared Leto for most of it. Then you have the villain who I will say, the villain doesn't understood the assignment. I don't know if the assignment was clear from Morbius. Hmm. It's trying to be an anti-hero movie and I think it struggled to find being an anti-hero because like he did all this stuff to find a cure for him and his friend and his brother, surrogate brother and like for other people like them. But that all goes out the window in the second act because he's so focused on being, you know, a vampire now and trying to cure that, which, okay, cool. Makes sense, but where's the anti-hero really, except for like, you accidentally killed a few people who were bad guys on a ship. That meant, and then like, you're using these abilities to do what? Just serve yourself. So I can't really call you a hero, mm -hmm. and except for the fact that you took out the villain. And the villain is pretty incidental to so the whole thing. You're not trying to be a good guy. You're not, they're trying to save like, everyone else. Right. I think it, like he does, like his whole life, he dedicated to healing others like him and like extending their lives and doing that. So like, you know, you know he has like a, some, he has a moral compass for doing good and he does, and he understands that killing people is bad. It is wrong. And he does not want to kill people. Like he's doing his best he can to not have to um, survive off of actual blood where he has the artificial blood that he developed that he feeds himself. So I guess like there, that's how he's an anti-hero. He's not trying to be a bloodsucker like the villain but anywho so there's that but yeah if the I think if they had really just dug in not dug into it, but like lean into the vampire lore that already exists in the Marvel Cinematic Universe I mean like for most y'all not gonna re recognize Blade as being in the MCU but I will in this sense because they've already acknowledged that a Blade movie is coming so I feel like it was a missed opportunity to not kind of lean into like it could have been as simple as an Easter egg about, you know what, these deaths look similar to that thing that happened a few years ago. I don't know, something like that. Just something like that. Instead of, it seems like in this world, the idea of vampires even existing seems impossible. But because again, as the summary said, this is supposed to take place in Sony's Spider-Man's cinematic universe which I'm confused and okay so here's the spoiler not a big spoiler if that's the case I'm gonna just say it I was gonna try to say it y'all remember from the vulture from the first Spider-Man movie starring Tom Holland and what's that man Michael Keaton Michael Keaton is the vulture yeah yeah he's the vulture he and he shows up in this movie but they taught they do a tie-in with No Way Home where there's a, a multiverse rift and Michael Keaton the Falcon, not the Falcon, the Vulture ends up there in that universe. Terry and said they're going to try to do a second Morbius film with Vulture there instead of with. In the I think they're going to. We know. I think this is set up. This was set up for Sinister Six. But we don't know where P Peter Parker is in this universe that they have been transported, Michael Keaton has been transported to. Like, I remember in the trailer they mentioned Venom. So, mm -hmm. and then from what we know in Venom's universe, there is no Peter Parker. 
or there is no Spider-Man, at least as far as we know. So, or like they, they, there is no Peter Parker or that they, they don't, they haven't introduced Peter Parker or Spider-Man to Venom. Like there's no acknowledgement of that. So again, my confusion is, is there gonna be another Peter Parker <laughs> that we're gonna have to be introduced in this universe or is Sinister Six gonna find themselves over to Peter's universe? Cause that's where I'm so confused. Like what is the Sinister Six? I'm like, and I told y'all this movie left me with more questions. Cause like, okay, there's gonna be a Sinister Six movie but you took Michael Keaton from the universe that our Peter Parker is in and put him in a different universe. Why did he go to a different universe? And the whole thing about Michael Keaton- hey, Does it have to do with because of the whole, whole how they bought out the, the Sony? I mean, it, it still doesn't make sense because the Peter Parker we know in the MCU is owned by the Sony. Like that's, that's there. So- but the thing with this, why this might be, uh, why they may have shot themselves in the foot, so to speak, with this, is because the like, Morbius is bad. No one is gonna go and see a second Morbius picture. I mean, pretty much. But I guess by putting him in the Sinister Six movie. But I mean, like, I just need to understand how do you take a character that was already in Peter Parker's universe that you could have just started the Sinister Six there, there. and just you could have just took Morbius there, but Morbius doesn't know who Peter Parker was, so that's why he didn't go there. But I don't understand why Michael Keaton ended up in venom in 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 morbius universe i guess we'll see when they do the next d23 conference we'll find out i guess i would like somebody to draw me a board and explain it to me like i'm five because it doesn't make any sense but hey just give me my blade movie <laughs> this they should have handled the vampire like if honestly handled it, it should have been like the blade it, like not saying it should have been like blade but like that's a, that's how you do a horror superhero movie. This is not a horror super movie, a superhero movie. There are hair, there are horror elements in this movie, but it's not a dark. It doesn't come off as like the dark horror superhero movie that I think they were going for. And now I'm done. I didn't went three minutes over my time, but I'm done. Listen, I'm I'm gonna be quick with my wrap up too. So the last thing we're gonna talk about is my last my film. My film is a Korean action film called Spirit Walker. Direct written and directed by um Yoon Jae Kun and it's it's gonna be on Haya and it's gonna be released by Wago USA on digital Blu-ray. Um so it's not available for streaming as yet. This one is a good drama. I it's a good, it's a good action film. The action choreography is really, really good. It has some really good um driving chase sequences. This one is an interesting concept because it's about this man who is unable to remember his own identity and he wakes up in a different body every 12 hours. Right. So it's an interesting concept where it's like, even as the audience, we don't know who he's going to be next. Right. So he at so at 12 o'clock, 12 a.m. and then at 12 noon, he changes body. So we don't know as the audience who he's going to be. He doesn't know who he's going to be. And it's this whole thing about finding following all of these schools of like trying to find out who he is, how he ended up with this ability, is in an ability, is it a curse? And it's something with the government involved. I'm suspecting that this film is going to have a part two. We need a part two because it does not explain how he becomes a spirit walker. So the, the whole spirit walker thing is because he's able to transfer bodies. He doesn't do it consciously. It's against his will, right? So it's not like he picks a body and says, oh, I'm going to go and transfer. You know, it's like, it's not about that. It's about, it's completely involuntary. And that's the terrifying thing that you can see. This It's all about this man who's terrified. Like, I don't know who I'm going to be when thing, but I'm also going to, I need to find out the answers. I need to find out what the fuck is going on. Excuse my language. What the hell? I mean, I would feel on? that way too if I'm just jumping into people's You're like, what the hell is going on? 
on, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like the, I think some, I think one of my favorite things about this film is the VFX. So like sometimes when he's in locations, like the world around him shifts mm-hmm. and it changes. And it's not that the world is changing. That's just how his brain is processing the, him going into this new body, right? And like you can see like scenes break down and um, like furniture moves and walls change and like the whole, like each build, buildings change and become, they don't do it often in the film, which I think is smart. So it doesn't become a gimmick in the film. And it also, I think it like, helped with the budget because that would have been a lot of money for B, for VFX. They use it as strategic mm-hmm. points, which I think is smart. And like the main character, um, um, Kang Yan, who is played by Yoon Kei Sang, he's really good. I think this is why, I think normally I've seen him in dramatic, like more like, dramatic emotional roles like the last drama I saw him in was um chocolate that one made me ball my eyes out oh my god that drama food porn like the cinematography that drama is stunning but his character ha- broke my heart but he was really good as Kanye and then it also stars uh, Park Yoo-woo and Im Jae-yeon and it's really good I think for some people, some people may be like, do I have to watch this film a second time to figure out what's going on? But I, because I was thinking about it, I'm like, would I tell anyone to watch, to give it a second watch? But I don't think, I think that's the whole point. Where we as the audience are like Ian, where we're like, we don't know, even at the end, it's just like, you don't know what's happening. And I think that helps with the, um, with the whole experience because it's like, it's confusing. Like the, the film doesn't give you definite answers, which I kind of like, it's different. You okay. know, like it doesn't walk you through and it doesn't spoon feed you the plot. You're like, as the audience, you are just as confused as the end. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who all of these people coming at him. You don't know why these people are coming at him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's it, it, it I think it is, but it is definitely worth a second watch because just to figure out so you can so like when, after you watch the first time, you'll be like, okay, so I kind of understand what's going on. And then uh, the second one should be like, I still don't know what's going on, but I'm intrigued to see what the hell happens in the sequel. I hope they get to do a sequel, it's really good um it's different and like there's not a lot of dialogue so it's not a very dialogue heavy film it's more about action and it's more about like just this character trying to find out who he is and mm-hmm. it's about doing very sp- sp- smart specific things like there's this character that he meets and this is the one character that is cons- one of the only characters that is consistent where he has everything he sees this man he tells this man i'm hot dog and when you find out why he says that he's hot dog i think it's like pretty genius and it's like that's how the person knows it's him Right, and the person, because this man is like, I don't know. He's like, why the hell are you doing this? Why are you, why are you taking him? And he's like, it's hot dog. And he's like, okay, I get it. And like, it kind of made me think like, sometimes I, I think everyone should have code words <laughs> with their friends and family. Like, if should anything happen to me, what would be your code word be if something happens? And my, my, I also think my code word would be like, I hate trade to Busan. Because anyone who knows me knows that I love trade to Busan. If I ever, I on the phone, get out, or I to ever tweet out a message and say, oh my God, trade to Busan is such a trash movie. Call 911 and trace my phone. Oh, I admittedly know you've been taken. That is going to be our new code word. That's going to be, I need you to just say, train to Busan is ass. And I'm like, nah, that's not the real oh, Carolyn. Exactly. Call the popo and <laughs> trace my phone. What is, what is y'all 911? I'm, I'm, no. Same here in Canada. Same here in Canada. 911. <laughs> cool. Cool. Save my girl. <laughs> exactly. They just kind of made me think about that, how everyone should have some kind of code word or code phrase to tell people like, yeah, it's me. Something's wrong. But yeah, it's interesting. I'll, I'll provide the link for other It's going to be distributed by Wago USA. It premiered on March 18th, and it actually won an award at the New York Asian Film Festival for um, actual choreography of stunts because the stunt team is the same team that did Squid Game. But they they are not the only... They, I, I don't want to even attribute it only to Squid Game because they've done other 
projects as well mm-hmm. and like you guys know like i love soft green and asian cinema because like, their fight choreography is always on par like they don't slip when it comes to fight choreography and this fight choreography in this one is really good um so it's gonna go on it's gonna release on blue, digital and blu-ray on april 12th but you can find like i think links to view it digitally um on welgo usc as well so i'll provide those links for that and that is spirit walker by you jaykun and it's really good it's interesting um it might not be everyone's cup of tea as i said because it's not like dialogue heavy and um which but, but that's actually something i like about it but i think that's it that's we're gonna wrap up so every so nisha tell everyone where they can find you and what you'll be getting up to like plug yourself for that project that you just did recently for pbs where my girl wrote a whole episode for a documentary tell them um <laughs> After that, I don't think I got you. What you saw my mom, like, tell them what you do, baby. Tell them, tell them what you do. Thank everybody, get you a Carolyn. Um, but yes, so as always, y'all can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Nisha Place. I'm almost at a thousand followers on Instagram. So if y'all can please know, check help out. me over there with my cosplay page, I would really appreciate that. That's at Nisha Plays. Um, and yes, as Carolyn said, when we last spoke, the project it was not out, but the episode is now out for my episode, the episode that I wrote for Subcultured for PB, the PBS um, docu- docu-series, which you can go watch on their YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube, type in PBS Voices, and you'll see it. There's a few other episodes that came out also. I highly encourage y'all to check them out because honestly, I love that this show does this whole thing about like, let's look at different parts of society and culture and then like technically subcultures and what makes them them. And yeah, I'm very proud of the end result of the script and like how, what they did with the script and how they turned it into the final production. Um, So yeah, if you want to learn more about anime fan culture and otaku culture, y'all can do that over there and read it. I'm not read it, watch it. I might, I've been playing with the idea of writing something deeper on the, on the, on the topic. So that's something I'm considering, or we could just do an episode here about it. We could because I am like, but well, you guys know, like Nisha is the manga professional. Um, ex- what's the word I'm looking for? Expert. <laughs> but I, but I have been watching. I, I, I've been really getting interested into more into manga and manhwa. I have stopped reading them for a while because like, I, yeah, that's some. I we, we should do a special episode on that because like, I've been watching more of the BL or as I prefer to call it, middle of drama, um, dramas and a lot of them are adapted from manhwas and manga. And I like mm-hmm. I've been re- I was reading Semantic Error somehow the writer decided they're going to have a cliffhanger and be like season two. Oh, how you hell are you going to do a season two of the show just wrapped? What? But, yeah. but that's because of the English um, translate um, translated version because the Korean one is complete, was complete and that's how they did the show. But the, the, Asian, yeah. the English one isn't fully translated yet. So the second part is going to be translated sometime soon. They'll be like, oh, cliffhanger. I'm like, how are you going to have a cliffhanger in a manga? But they did. Um, but I've been reading more manhwa and more manga so that's what we can definitely go into and I've been watching like more um of the adapt live adaptations of the projects like one I was reading I watched recently because we did it in our last um episode where I talked about Kaya Siaku and I that was so good I have to go and read I have to see if I can find the translated version of the mm-hmm. manga now because I really love the show and I hope they get a second to a season two I hope so um but yeah we got we should definitely do a special episode on manga and otaku culture and that kind of stuff and for me as you guys know um i've been doing reviews as i mentioned earlier in an episode i did a recent review for pachinko for joysauce.com i wrote a review for um belfast which i really enjoyed for um, universityreviews.com all of those stuff are linked in my 
um twitter and my instagram um what else has have i been up to i did cover south by southwest but i didn't do as much coverage as i want because geoblocking is a thing and i don't understand why we yeah. started in 2002 in 2022 so i wasn't able to see as much films and projects as i wanted to um but the stuff that i did cover is linked again is on but why the podcast.com site where you when you go into our Arthur profiles on our on the site, you can find everything that we do for the site there. And um, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram at CarrieSanish12. In my pain tweets, is usually all of my most current work, our most recent work. And then in my Linktree account, it's um, in my profile there. Uh, for everything, you can watch on my YouTube channel, the podcast, Beyond the Romance, and Carolyn Talks. I've been doing um, these live calling sessions with a new app called Colin. Those are good been doing like um every, almost every sunday at 3 p.m eastern and i've been doing my saturday night sci-fi live tweets like as usual every saturday night at 10 p.m eastern um me and my co-host we like whole like tweet sessions where we do um sci-fi genre films tv shows on various streaming platforms and as as for my beyond the romance podcast i do dramas with carrie where i like tweet some of the dramas that i'm currently watching you can go and see everything that i'm doing just look for the hashtag and I think that is it. <laughs> and until yay, we wrapped up until the next episode of So Here's What Happened. Everyone, stay safe. Bye. Bye. <laughs>